turn with me once again to the passage of Scripture that was read earlier in Ezekiel chapter 29. I would like to give a, a, a thank you to the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony again for extending to me another invitation and a welcome to speak once again at these monthly meetings. Um, our title for this year is The Glory of God uh, Studies in the Holy Book of Ezekiel. My particular uh, task this evening is dealing with the subject of the, the prophecies of the fall of Egypt uh, and the purpose that I'm going to try and keep to tonight is the glory of God in the judgment of Egypt. Chapters 29 uh, through verses 1 through 21 that we read tonight are foundational for the understanding of the other three chapters. So if we understand this chapter, then we understand the other chapters because there is a very close link and connection between each one. So, Lord willing, we will begin tonight in this chapter and, Lord willing, we shall conclude in this chapter. Now, because of the quantity of scripture involved, I must of necessity tonight be selective in the presentation of the subject. What a passage of scripture. I was sharing just the, yesterday that um, I was listening to Mr. Douglas's message uh, in, in April and he used the word that the passage that he was reading uh, and studying and declaring was riveting. Now, I, in my earlier life I was an engineer and the word riveting means something that is put together um, not to be dissembled. It's not like a nut and a bolt or a screw or a nail even, um, but a rivet is permanent. Well, I have found exactly the same. When he said that in his message, the echo went through my own soul that it has been absolutely exciting and exhilarating to look at these passages of scripture that I have not really done in any depth before. I have read them many times, but spending some time in a short passage of scripture like this has been a great and wonderful blessing. Totally absorbing. And I hope that I give something of that enthusiasm to you tonight. Now let me just give you a flavour of what's to come. Because there's a breadth of subjects that um, are covered in these four chapters. Let me just give you a little glimpse. There are historical events here, both past events and events that were then present in Ezekiel's day. Secondly, there are prophetical events, and what a breadth there also. The history of the future, premillennial events. Millennial events, the day of the Lord is mentioned, the confederacy of the nations is mentioned, also Antichrist is mentioned also. What a breadth in four chapters of scripture. 
Thirdly, events relating not just to Egypt, but also to Israel. One or two glimpses we'll see tonight. Also to other nations, Babylon and Assyria. Now both of these, if you know your Bible history and your secular history, not only were nations, but these were the world superpowers at the time. Assyria first, Babylon succeeding. Ten other nations are mentioned in this short passage. And a number of Egyptian cities which still exist and we can identify them today. Fourthly, there is a dating system. Now I don't think that's been brought out by the previous speakers so far. But there is a wonderful dating system in this book. And a, a dating system always of necessity means it's rooted in history. So we have this wonderful, uh, um, in our passage tonight, five um, dating references. Now, what do we have tonight? Well, I'm going to give you a number of um, foundational truths first, and then we want to look through the seven prophecies. There are seven definite and related, and I emphasize that word, related prophecies in these passages. Another thing that we find in, the, in these four chapters, the scripture not only deals with nations, but with individuals. So, Pharaoh, Ezekiel himself, Nebuchadnezzar, leaders of the other nations, however, they are unnamed. Not only do we have events relating to the land of the living, but we have a very rare excursion tonight into the netherworld. So, also, as well as narrative, both contemporary narrative, retrogressive narrative, along with prophecy, there's also another chapter, which is of comparative illustration. That is, Egypt is compared with Assyria. That just gives you a flavour of what we are going to look at tonight. There's a great breadth of truth, a great expanse of understanding to be delved into and to be looked at. Lord willing, we shall go into some of the um, aspects more deeply and some we will just be touching the surface. But hopefully they can be suggestive for yourselves for further study. So what are my foundational thoughts? Well, first of all, we want to look at um, the number of the prophecies. Secondly, we want to look at some of the time references between the prophecies. These, these could be uh, uh, edifying. Um, we want to also look at the reasons for the prophecies. And this is the oft-repeated phrase, Then shall they know that I am the Lord. And, and fourthly, uh, to whom are the prophecies directed? Well, initially, as we shall see tonight, to Pharaoh, to Egypt, to Egypt's multitudes, to Egypt's supporting nations. Um, secondly, it's illustrative 
of all nations worldwide today to take heed of this God. There is today a great sentimentality in religion. God is love. We hear much of that. And that is true. The foundation of all God's attributes are his love and his holiness. But we must remember that these prophecies we're going to look at tonight are yet future. And a number of Christians today are very uncomfortable with that scripture in the book of Hebrews. Our God is a consuming fire. And trying to relate that to God is love. So we see an aspect of God's holiness tonight which must be satisfied. Sin must be dealt with. Right, so these are the foundations. And then we shall go into the seven separate uh, prophecies. First of all, the number of prophecies. There are seven prophecies in the passage. Six of them are dated. One is undated. I'll mention that when we come to it. Each of these has a definite day, month, and year when they were given, when they were received by Ezekiel the prophet. And this is profitable because we might think that these prophets were receiving revelations on a daily basis. Well, it would seem from the passages not so. I find here that um, between the first and the seventh prophecy, there is a period of 16 years and 78 days. Now you might wonder why I can be so precise. Well, a Jewish year was always built up of 30, 12 day, months of 30 days, 360 days in their year. So it's very easy. There was no leap years in their system. So we, we can date these precisely. Some of them only have a few days. One of them, two weeks between a prophecy. Another one, almost three months. Another one, nearly 22 months. And between the 5th and the 6th, 14 years and 15 days. Just to give you an idea is that this prophet received his prophecies over an extended period of time. Yet, there is a certain sameness to them. There is a certain sameness in the coverage of who it is directed to, what is directed to them. That's important. We'll see that in just a few moments. Now, what are the reasons for the prophecies? Well, I want to just spend a little bit more time in this foundational part. Um, you will look at verse uh, t- uh, 6 um, of, uh, of chapter 29, and it mentions there, and all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord, because they have been a staff of reed to the house 
of Israel. The, this phrase, and they shall know that I am the Lord, um, is used uh, 63 times in the book of Ezekiel. Um, and in our section, it is used uh, nine times, which I make 14%, which is no inconsiderable amount um, in, in such a short passage of, of Scripture. That they might know that Jehovah is God. That is why these prophecies have been given. That they might know that Jehovah is not just a localised God of a nation, the nation of Israel, or a localised God of a geographical part of the earth, or of a cultural phenomenon, but that Jehovah is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the one, only, true and living God. Now, let us just emphasise that a little further um, by looking at verse 6, just a little bit more closely there. And they shall know that I am the Lord. Who shall know? Well, all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know. Not just the ruling class, not just Pharaoh, not just the nobles and the priests, um, not just the learned class, not just those who could write and uh, read and understand the hieroglyphs, um, but everyone, everyone in the land shall know that I am Jehovah God. Now when Mr. Tom's read earlier, the first five verses there deal with Pharaoh. He shall know. Because God will smite him. And he will be smitten for the, the sin of pride. Look what he says himself. This is, these are the words of Pharaoh. Um, that are recorded for us at the end of verse 3. He has said, My river is mine own, and I have made it for myself. So here we see the sin of pride, very clearly brought out into the open. He is guilty of it. His people are guilty of it also. Now this king, he will die in battle. Verse 5 tells us that he will, in the middle of that chapter of verse 5, he will fall in the open fields. Which, for an Egyptian king, is unthinkable. Because one thing that the Egyptian pharaohs had from the time before they were pharaoh, and while they were pharaoh, and during the whole time that they were Pharaoh, they were obsessed with the afterlife, with the preservation of themselves, their body, the embodiment of the culture that they represented in the next life. If he's going to fall in the open field, what is going to happen to him? Well, very graphically, the scriptures tell us there, the end of verse 5, and they will be, uh, he will be given to the beasts of the field, Fowls of heaven. 
he will not have the end that he thought he would have. This to show that then they shall know that I am Jehovah. There's also a secondary reason here. Um, in verses 6 through 7, um, because of their treatment of Israel, um, they are being uh, judged also. Um, because in verses 6 through 7 there, they allowed Israel to trust in them and to rely upon them. That was Israel's sin. And secondly, by breaking, in verse 7, their promise to Israel, that was their sin. Let's just read verse 7. When they took hold of thee by the hand, thou didst break and rend all their shoulder. And when they leaned upon thee, thou breakest and madest all their loins to be at a stand. And of course that is confirmed in verse 16 of the same passage. And it shall, uh, shall be no more the confidence of the house of Israel, which bringeth their iniquity to remembrance, when they shall look after them. And then that phrase once again, then they shall know that I am Jehovah. So here we're laying down the foundations of these prophecies that we're just about to look at in some detail. So these events and experience will prove an overwhelming argument and be so obvious that the leader of Egypt and all of his people will know that Jehovah is God. Now that is an event that has not happened as yet. Um, but And we shall see, Lord willing, that it shall. Now, I may just take a little moment longer before we look into the prophecies, um, just to look at verse 9 of chapter 29. As I say, it's foundational, and if we get the foundations, or a number of foundations here, then we can build upon this over the space of the, the time that we have this evening. And the land of Egypt shall be desolate and waste, and they shall know that I am the Lord, because he has said, the river is mine and I have made it. Now, we see there an, an, an affirmation again of the same sin, the sin of pride. And this time it's not just Pharaoh's pride, it's the, it's the, it's the nation. It, it, the, there is a national pride that this is our river, our life-giving river. So, the... In verse 8 it says, therefore. And the therefore, we often ask people, what is the therefore, therefore? And the therefore is, it concludes that in the light of the previous events, up to verse 7, um, in like manner will the Lord God be as thorough with the whole land of Egypt. Notice the words of absolutism in verse 9. And the land shall be 
Desolate. Now think of a desolate place. It's not a populated place. It's not a built up place. It's not a place of commerce. It's not a place where there is industry. It's a desolate place. Egypt will be desolate. And if that weren't enough, another absolute word. It will be a waste place. A waste, a complete waste. All because of the sin and pride of Egypt. Notice the word in verse 9. Shall be. It shall be like that. It's not like that. It was not like that in Ezekiel's day. And it has not been like that in subsequent years or centuries up till this present time. We cannot say that verse 9 in any way has been fulfilled from that time up till this time. We will prove that in just a few moments. But I want to just show here that who is the agency here? We know that it is God who is speaking through the prophet. Well, look at verse 8. The Lord says there, I will bring a sword upon thee. I will bring. Notice the personal pronoun here. And also in verse 8, I will cut off man and beast. Notice, out of thee. Very important to look at all the details of the passage. Out of thee, not within thee, but out of thee. Um, so what was true of Pharaoh in verses 1 through 5 is going to be true of the people also and of the land in verses 8 through 9. Again, for the sin of pride that we've seen in verse 9. And for relying upon human power and innovation. And notice how the Lord makes the punishment, or part of the punishment, we must say, part of the punishment, fit the crime. In verse 10, Behold, therefore, I am against thee and against thy rivers, that, and I will make the land of Egypt utterly waste and desolate from the tower of Syene unto the border of Ethiopia. A number of things to notice in that verse there. Uh, notice again, the Lord says, I am the one that's against thee. And against the rivers. Well, we know there's only one river in Egypt. We've got more rivers in Scotland than, than Egypt has in, uh, in Egypt. They have only one river. But they had many canals. Many canals that they diverted off and, and along on either sides of the banks of, of the Nile. Um, but notice the emphasis again, the absolutism. Not just waste this time, but utterly waste. Utterly waste. Now, how, how, how can we use the language to make it means uh, powerful in our understanding? It's not just going to be waste, it's going to be utterly waste. It's going to be remarkable. It's going to be noticed not just by the ethnic Egyptians, but by others around about also. And we'll see that later also. Um, and then also the, the geographical, the geographical extent of this is from the, the, um, the Tower of Syene, um, 
which is in the north, up in the Delta area, if you know your, your, your geographic history of Egypt, in the north, in the Delta area, called um, um, Lower Egypt, and as far south as Ethiopia, or to what they called Upper Egypt. Um, a huge extent, a vast area, the whole land, taking in probably a bit of Sudan, uh, modern-day Sudan also. So, we see here the, the extent of this. And we should take note of these individual details. Now, we'll just... Um, I'm just looking at the time. And we'll move on. Um, do just another foundational aspect before we go to the seven prophecies. The time references. I think that's very important. That's what captivated me. That's one of the first things I looked at in the passage, um, looking for time aspects or time references in the four chapters and the seven prophecies. Um, well, in chapter 29, verse 21, and chapter 30, verse 9, it's in that day. So it's a specific day. It's a specific time. It's not just... Any of the events that have happened in the past, it's in a special de uh, time. Um, also, um, a good time reference for us is, is verse 3 of chapter 30, when it mentions there, for the day is near, even the day of Jehovah is near. And that's a very specific time. That's a specific time near in the, in the, in the latter days of, uh, of, of the reign of the Gentiles, of man's era, um, uh, uh, pre-second uh, advent. It, it, it's, it's, it's at that time. Um, and it will be a period of time when the Lord displays and magnifies his glory in a powerful and in a wonderful way. I might say digress also, not, not just in Egypt, I mean that will be seen in Egypt, but this will be cataclysmic, this will be world shattering event because of the second advent of our Lord will affect the world, the, the, the orbis that we live in, it will be a global event. It's not so difficult for us to understand nowadays, is it? Someone drops a pencil in New Zealand and it's news the next day. In the media that we have today, things happen so fast. We, we know details that happen. Even insignificant news items make large news, especially on um, the internet and media, um, their Facebooks and their Twitters and so on. Things happen so quickly. This is going to be a worldwide event. However, our thoughts tonight are specifically with the judgment upon Egypt. Because, as I mentioned earlier, this is something that we should all sit up and take notice. And I would say, especially nations and leadership of nations. Right. Okay, and of course there is the, one of the best time references of all in chapter 32, which uh, mentions the the astral uh, events that will happen at the second advent of our Lord. Now that's found in uh, chapter 32 and it's verse 7. And when I shall put thee out, I will cover the heaven. 
and make the stars thereof dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give her light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over thee and set darkness upon thy land, saith the Lord. So these astral events there um, found in this passage also in Isaiah chapter 13 verse 10 and of course you know the two New Testament passages in Matthew 24 Ezekiel, and Mark 13. So the time references certainly give us an indication that these are events yet to come to pass. Um, now I did one or two prophetic comparisons and I will be almost ready to go into the prophecies. Um, I will bring the sword is mentioned in all four chapters um, also the cutting off man and beast out of the land is mentioned in chapters 29 and 32 the utter desolation that we've looked at is found both in chapters 29 and 32 um, the geographical extent, the Tower of Syene, just in case we forgot it was going to be the whole uh, length of the land, is again confirmed in chapter 30. Um, no foot of man shall pass through it, nor foot of beast. That's found in chapter 29-32. Chapters 29 and 32 I've found have been like a, a pair of bookends for these, for these chapters, um, keeping everything together in there. I think that's really all I want. There's a number of things I could pass on. Now, just before we go into the, the prophecies, I, I think I really need to speak about this excursion into the netherworld. Um, it's um, mentioned, um, in, it, it's, it's found in chapter 32, and, and, and indeed uh, practically the whole of chapter 32. It's intimated first of all in chapter 31, but the, the, the greater detail is given in, uh, in 32. Let's think of this place. It's called in verse 18 and 24, the nether parts of the earth. It's spoken about as going down into the pit in verses 18, 21, 23 and 24. It's mentioned also as in our English Bible hell or in the Hebrew Sheol in verses 25 and 21. I would like to take the time and, and take you to all these verses but time prohibits it seems that there are geographical locations within this place. It mentions about the midst of Sheol. It mentions the sides of Sheol. When Pharaoh and his nation are cast down in there, they are recognized by other nations that have already appeared in that area. There is speaking in verse 21. There is this idea that everyone is alive. Just think if we could just get this passage out to people who believe that when you die, you're dead. There's annihilation. There's nothing else. 
That is the end. Well, it's the end of the physical body, yes. Physical body then goes to sleep. Uh, but the, the spirit, the soul of man lives on. Lives on. And if people have not come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if they have not been born again by the spirit, this is where they will go. And I tell you, reading through this, it's a fearful place. It's a place where the fingers are being pointed at each other. Look at this. It is a place where even Pharaoh, in verse 31, takes comfort that, okay, I didn't win, I didn't succeed, I wasn't successful, but ha ha, neither were you. Assyria, Babylon, uh, Greece, Rome, whatever. Neither were you. It's a terrible place. I mean, we think it, it can be bad today with the pettiness of people and the bitchiness of people and the um, harshness that people uh, throw language at each other and insults at each other. Well, this would be far worse. It's a terrible but real description of a real place. It speaks there in a number of verses there of shared shame. None of us like to be ashamed, do we? It's a, it's a very humbling and, um, uh, emotion. Shared shame. It speaks about the, the graphic aspects there of iniquities being upon them. They're cast down there, not settled in as they would at a travel lodge, but cast down into that. That's where their beds are. And another significant thing that hit me in studying this, that these people all seem to be in the netherworld in their ethnic groups. I think there may be some significance for that. You remember how one man in the New Testament wanted Lazarus to go back from the dead to speak to the other four brothers. Why? Why would he want them not to come down to hell where he was? Other than the fact that being probably the oldest brother and had the responsibility of telling them about the way of salvation as it was at that time they would come down and blame him and blame each other is this the same reason why they're in the ethnic groups pointing the fingers at each other and pointing the fingers at others anyway I leave that for you to your consideration now the seven prophecies. Now we have to say that in the history of the world with Egypt that there has been partial fulfilments. Partial fulfilments of, of, of these prophecies. However, Normally when a nation would um, uh, invade Egypt, they would exploit and inhabit the country. 
For example, you know that the Romans used Egypt as the corn basket for the Roman Empire. That was where they fed their people, fed their soldiers from Egypt. So they didn't want to leave it desolate and waste. And all the others who have come from the time of the Assyrian to the Islamic invasion have all done the same. They've came to the country, they've subdued it, they've um, inhabited it, they've exploited it, they've used the natural resources um, for themselves and for others and for selling and for merchandise and commerce and so on. There have only been partial fulfilments of this. The complete fulfilment is, and, uh, 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 is, is what we find in verse 3 of chapter 30, the day of the Lord. That is our time guidance here, that these things will yet be future. So, we're going to go into the seven prophecies now, and we're going to ask four questions. I've got the same formula, so it's not going to be difficult to, to follow here. I've got the same four questions that we're going to ask in each of the prophecies. Who are, uh, why are they judged? How are they judged? When are they to be judged? And the reason for their judgment. And we shall deal, if possible, as time allows with all seven. So, the first prophecy. That um, I have called the prophecy of judgment, the judgment. The time reference, day 12, month 10, year 10, covering the first 16 verses of chapter 29. The analysis of the passage, is, there's four subjects that are dealt with there. We've seen it already. The judgment of Pharaoh, uh, the judgment of Egypt in general, um, the scattering of or the exile of Egypt, I've called it, and, and then the return from the scattering or the exile. Right. Why are they to be judged? Well, in verse 3, as we've seen already, for the sin of pride, by usurping the claim of the almighty creator and sustainer of men. That was what um, Pharaoh was claiming to be. He was claiming to be God over Jehovah. This will be true also of the Antichrist in the last age. He will do exactly the same. But the king of Egypt here um, has this view in mind. My river is mine. I made it for myself. The sin of pride. So how are they to be judged? Well, in both by divine power and by a human instrument. And I'll go into detail in this first prophecy and not do the same in the other prophecies because it is very similar. So, it's by divine power. Notice the personal pronoun used again and again. Verses 4, 5 and 10, I will. Verses 3 and 10, I am against. Verse 5, I have given. Verse 8, I will bring a sword upon thee. Verse 12, I will make the land desolate. Verse 12, I will scatter. Notice the personal pronoun. 
then shall they know that I am Jehovah. How are they to be dealt with? By divine instrument, but by human instrument also. In battle, we saw already, thou shalt fall upon the battlefield, verse 5. Killed by the sword, verse 8. And the land will be ransacked. Again, another word of absolutism, waste and desolate. So, when are they to be judged? Now, the judgment described in our first prophecy is very clearly future. For a number of reasons. Bear with me. Reason one. Because all the previous invasions of Egypt, as I've mentioned already, by various world superpowers of the past, have only ever wounded the nation and used the nation. Secondly, this prophecy brings out something that has not happened as yet. Notice verse 11. It speaks there of the land not being inhabited for 40 years. That has never, ever happened, ever. Since Israel was a nation, I have a, a, a little artifact that I keep on the stair in, in, in Forfar, and it's called the Narmer Pallet. It's, the original is in the museum in Cairo, and it's a uh, it's a it's a, uh, a shaped like a shield. It's black basalt, and it shows the the unification of Egypt, three thousand one hundred BC. Think of that, over five thousand years ago, and from that time until now, Egypt has never been desolate or uninhabited. For 40 years. So they're going to be in, uninhabited for 40 years. Verse 12. The land will be desolate for 40 years. The cities will be empty for 40 years. The Egyptians will be scattered. Scattered now notice. Scattered abroad. This is their, their exile as the um, as the Israel went into the 70 years of captivity, this will be their 40 years of captivity. The, Egyp the Egyptian will be dispersed for 40 years, according to verse 12. However, that is the prophecy of the future of what is going to happen to the land. I'll mention a reason for it in just a moment, I believe. But notice in verse 13, there is a reversal. The Egyptians will be gathered after 40 years. And the Egyptians will return to the Delta region. That's where that mentioned Pathros is there. And they will be a very insignificant nation. The word in our scriptures is base, or low, or lowly nation. And they will never exalt themselves again at that time or after the 40 years. So here we see a very definite time reference in the future. 
And it's all coming back to our central theme, my purpose, I'm trying to keep to my purpose. My purpose is to show the glory of Jehovah in the judgment of Egypt. This is for the glory of Jehovah, our God, our Saviour, our Lord. When this happens, it will be obvious. You will not have to say to someone, say, well, when does this part of scripture when will this be fulfilled it will be obvious it will be open we will see it we will understand it one person will not have to say to another this is the fulfillment of that they will say I know this is the fulfillment of that because it's so obvious because the glory of the Lord will be manifested worldwide they will know this they will see this they will understand this now these 40 years Maybe some of you are wondering, when are these 40 years going to be there? Well, these 40 years must be after the second advent of our Lord. It must be, as I mentioned in the um, introduction, um, it must be millennial. So, um, when the Antichrist and the Antichristian armies and their hordes um, uh, are dealt with, Egypt is also dealt with. To the glory of God. And it will be for the first 40 years of the millennium. There will be this time where Egypt will bear the same relationship now. When I say to you people, Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that that is a judgment of God. That has been since the time of Abraham. Which is practically now 4,000 years ago. But it's still in our memories, it's still in our minds, and we still look upon it as a judgment of God. So Sodom and Gomorrah is our judgment illustrations now. The judgment illustration in the millennium will be Egypt for 40 years. But our Lord is a gracious Lord. And he's a merciful Lord. Because he will bring them back from that captivity and that dispersal. How will this be done? It was a little easier for Israel. Because they went into Babylonian exile. One nation going to one country. With this, it is one nation going to many countries. Not so easy to gather a dispersal, but the Lord will do this. And this again will be to his glory. And of course I know what some of you are thinking now with that, because that has to be because of what is in Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah 19 speaks about um, that time when Israel, Assyria and Egypt will be blessed. When the Lord says, Blessed be Egypt, my people. But that will be after the 40 years. Okay, moving on. The fourth question we ask this, this, this prophecy is, what are the reasons for the judgment? Um, well, as we saw in verse 16 uh, previously, it will break Israel's reliance upon Egypt. You know, this was seen very graphically until recently, wasn't it? The only... Islamic country 
in the world that had any alliance with, um, with Israel was Egypt. And I know that's not the situation at the moment. But you know, if Israel had the opportunity to have that back again, if they could, they would. If Egypt said tonight, we, we will have an alliance with you, they would take it. So this will break the alliance with Israel. However, the greatest reason is the one that we've seen already, mentioned three times in our passage, verses 6, 9 and 16. They shall know that I am Jehovah. Prophecy number two. I've called this prophecy the day of the Lord. This is the one that's undated. So you'll notice I have left chapter 29, but there's another prophecy there. But I'm treating it in a chronological order for a reason. The next chronological order is chapter 30, verses 1 through 19. Now we don't know the lapse from the previous um, lapse of time from the previous prophecy, but it has to be less than 85 days, because between the first and the third prophecy is 85 days. So it's a time in between there. If we say this is chronological. What's the analysis of this passage? Well, there's two things. Judgment upon Egypt and her helpers this time, verses 1 through 9. And then judgment upon Egypt in particular, verses 10 through 19. Why are they to be judged? Well, again, and it's wonderful, the Lord keeps repeating this again and again. It's for the sin of pride. Verse 6 of chapter 30, the pride of her power. There were those that seemed to have fully uh, concurred with the pride of Egypt. That's why a number of, of, of nations are mentioned here. Notice them in verse 5. Uh, Libya, Lydia, Chub, um, all the mingled peoples, not specified, and the men of the land who are in league with them. So, a, a number of people in league with them. They were in league with Egypt, they upheld Egypt and her principles, and... Um, um, they will be judged and fall with Egypt according to verse 6. There is, however, a little exception to the rule. Ethiopia, mentioned in verse 4. Um, they, will, they don't seem to fully, they will not in the future fully concur with Egypt. Um, but it tell, still tells us there in verse 4 that the, in Ethiopia there will be great pain. And that after the judgment of Egypt, this final judgment, the Lord will send messengers to Ethiopia, verse 9. But that will only add to, to make the careless Ethiopians afraid. So they're not going to be judged in exactly the same way as the others who will fall and be desolate and be wiped out uh, and go into their captivity, um, Ethiopia will, will miss that. But their judgment will be a judgment of fear. The Lord will put fear into them. Um, how are they to be judged? Well, again, there is the, uh, by divine power and there's also the human instrument. Um, I think I just need to mention a couple of verses here. In verse 8, When I have set a fire in Egypt, 
Um, verse 10, I will also make the multitude of Egypt to cease. Um, verse 12, I will make the rivers dry, the land waste. And significantly this time the idols um, destroyed in verse 13, out of the land. And then you can spend the time yourselves looking at verses 13 through 18, where various Egyptian cities are mentioned, and also the I wills of Jehovah in relationship to them. Unless we're in doubt that there is, um, that this is divine power, in verse 19, may I hasten to add, Jehovah leaves his signature. He says, thus will I execute judgments in Egypt. That's again the divine power. The human instrument, well again, verse 4, the Lord is going to use the sword, as we've seen already. Um, the league, it tells us in verse 5, they also shall fall by the sword, not just um, from Egypt. And then uh, the geographical extent from the, the Tower of Sinai, um, they will fall with the sword from um, Upper Egypt to Lower Egypt, um, from Sinai to Ethiopia. Um, thirdly, when are they to be judged? Well, Mr. B.W. Newton is very helpful here. Um, he says, it's now it is very evident, I quote from him, from both sacred history and secular history, that there have been partial fulfilment of these prophecies during the course of history. But a complete fulfilment is yet future, as seen in the reference, the big reference to Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 3, the day of Jehovah. So that is indeed the time reference for all of these events. Now we've seen in the first prophecy, Pharaoh in Egypt, the land, the scattering. Now we're seeing in the second one, Egypt and her helpers, they will be dealt with similarly. Um, and just to maybe put a little note of urgency into it, the, you see in verses 2 and 3, Howl ye, woe the day, for the day is near, even the day of Jehovah is near, a cloudy day, it shall be a time of the heathen. Notice very significantly this day is given a name in verse 9. A remarkable name. The day of Egypt. And then it mentions about the multitude being taken away into captivity again in verse 4. The foundations broken uh, down. The word fall is mentioned three times. and I, I, The number of times that waste and desolate are used also. Going into captivity. Reasons for the judgment again in the second prophecy. And they shall know that I am Jehovah. So all this is for the glory of God. The third prophecy now. The enemy I've called this prophecy. It is in the, 20, no, it's in the seventh day, first month, eleventh year, covering Ezekiel chapter 30 verses 20 through 26. The lapse from the previous, well we don't know. Because that was the undated one, the second one. But from the first prophecy, 85 days. The analysis of this passage, three things. There's a judgment again. We're seeing a certain similarity now. A certain sameness. 
Pharaoh, king of Egypt, mentioned in verses 20 through 22. The judgment of the people, verses 23 and verse 26. And also, um, a judgment by the hand of the king of Babylon, verses 24 through 25. Why are they to be judged in this prophecy? It does not specify in this particular um, case as to what the, the sin is. But because it's dealing with the same future, it is safe to say that the same sin of pride, self-reliance of Egypt and his uh, Pharaoh and his people. Again, you find the same words used as to how they are to be judged. Again, it's I, I, the personal pronoun from the Lord. And again, it's the, uh, the human instrument is mentioned. Now, a more specific instrument is mentioned this time. Um, it will um, be through the arms, the strengthening of the arms of the king of Babylon. Notice here, a name is not appelled to the king. That's significant, I believe. And he shall stretch it out upon the land of Egypt. I hurry over that part because we've seen that twice before. When are they to be judged? This prophecy agrees with the previous two. And I like to call these prophecies, these seven prophecies, synoptic prophecies. Now you'll be familiar with that word, I think. Synoptic uh, it's what we call the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke, not John. We call them that because they have a certain agreeing together and seeing together as to the events in the life of our Lord. And I think these prophecies are synoptic prophecies. There is a certain, I think you've seen it by this time, of sameness in the prophecies as to who is to be dealt with. By whom, how, divine and human instrument. And they all agree in the fact of the scattering of the Egyptians. Verses 23 and 26. They all agree that this dispersal will not be just to one country, but to among the nations. Against verse 23 and verse 26. And there will be a dispersal between verses 23 and 26 also. You know, when I was looking through this, this, these are what we call doublets. And the doublet in scripture is very important um, um, to remind us of the importance of two witnesses. Uh, Deuteronomy 17.6 and Matthew 18.16. And in the mouth of two witnesses shall a matter be established. We've been given seven prophecies. These doublets here prove in the passage. Now we're still on the third prophecy. Now he contends that this king of Babylon... Oh no, sorry, no, no, I must go back. I've got another quote here from Mr. Newton. Um, he's very helpful in this passage here. And he was very helpful for me because um, um, although Mr. Douglas said in April... We, we, we seek divine wisdom, and I sought divine wisdom for this, but I do use the, the human um, instruments also when they are faithful. When they are faithful. Mr. Newton says, 
um, is very useful. He says, um, careful analysis of this passage and in the comparison with others. Here's three things, uh, four things that he says. He contends that the king of Babylon, in verse 25, will be the Antichrist. That's the unnamed king of Babylon. Um, and he will be allowed by God to perform his judgments at the end time. That the arm of Pharaoh mentioned first in verse 21 and again in verse 22 is the stroke sustained in the account in Daniel 11, 40 through 45 in Upper Egypt. So if you read Daniel 11, 40 through 45, Pharaoh is given a, 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 a blow to one arm, metaphorically speaking, um, Upper Egypt. Uh, um, um, and this account here that is in verses 25 and onwards is dealing with when the second blow will be done the, the final blow so um, and the Lord uses the, the illustration there of breaking both arms of Pharaoh but strengthening the Antichrist in his battle as the leader of the Antichristian forces and will deal with Egypt And all this will be um, before the commencement of the millennium. And I believe pre-second advent. Again, uh, this is all for the glory and praise of God. Again, twice in this prophecy, and they shall know that I am Jehovah. Fourth prophecy, and I'll be brief with this one, because this prophecy is called the comparison. And all that we have here in this uh, um, prophecy, which is dated the first day, third month, eleventh year, covering Ezekiel chapter 31, 1 through 18, um, is 54 days after the last one that, um, that, he, that uh, Ezekiel received it. Two things here. The Egyptians are directed to remember a fact in history. What happened to the glory that was Assyria? Verses 1 through 9 speak about how Assyria became a vast and great nation. Having influence over, it was one of the superpowers, having influence over many nations. Many nations relying upon them, looking to them for help, for food, for commerce, for protection and so on. And then in the second half of the prophecy, verses 10 through 17, the Egyptians are directed to the doom of Assyria. The sin of the Assyrians were exactly the same. Um, uh, the ugly sins of pride and rebellion come out very clearly in verses 3 through 8. Uh, the sins of self-exaltation, self-centeredness, Self-reliance, self-provision, all these come out. A truckload of sins there are mentioned in that passage there. Um, they did not realise that what they had in life was given by the provision of a God. A God of bounty. They had what they had only through the creator God. Jehovah 
and they did not give him that accolade. They lifted up their heart in their height. And so we have exactly the same. Um, how are they to be judged? Again by the divine power. That was what happened to, to Assyria. And this, uh, using human instruments. Um, and we could go on. Let's go on to the fifth prophecy now, which is, um, I have entitled The Lamentation. Time reference, first day, 12 months, 12th year. This one's 600 days from the previous, so quite a long time afterwards. And there's now a lamentation. This seems to be the post of what has happened in the first three prophecies. And then you have the comparison prophecy, number four. The fifth one now is the lamentation. So it's, a, it's as if the Lord is saying to Ezekiel, let us lament as if the event has already been accomplished. Why are they to be lamented? Well, verse 2 speaks of Egypt, the king, coming out of the water with great promise, but was a failure. He was caught in God's net, caught forth in the open field, in verse 4, eaten by the lower creation, in verse 6, unburied, verse 6 again, destroyed. We've seen these before. This is why they are lamented. Again, much is looked for of leaders, especially in the New Testament era, when we, the church, do not wield the sword. The state wields the sword. They wield the law, the justice of the land. We, the church, take care of the spiritual needs. We sometimes have to be the conscience of the leadership, but we do not wield the sword. Much was asked of an Assyrian king, much was asked of an Egyptian king, much is asked of all leaders, but they have failed. And they will be lamented by many people, verse 9. And of course, if we had time, we could have gone to the book of Revelation, where we could have compared scripture there to see the lamentation that will be when uh, these events happen. Anti-Christian hordes shall wail and lament for their great example, which was Egypt. When will this lamentation take place? Well, by careful comparing scripture with scripture, this is very clearly in the latter days at the second advent, because uh, it says in verse 7, and when I shall put thee out. So again, another reference to the captivity of Egypt, the desolation of Egypt, and so on. Um, there will be the great promised astral signs that we have seen in both Old and New Testament. So now we're coming to the time of the second advent when our Lord shall appear in great glory, in great, great majesty. But by that time, Egypt will be lamented. Antichrist will be lamented. Babylon will be lamented by the anti-Christian hosts. Those who are left. When the Lord comes back. Right, I think we'll move on now to the sixth prophecy. 
And I'm glad we spent a bit more time in it earlier because we, we don't have time to do it justice now. The sixth prophecy is called the Netherworld. Chapter 32, verses 17 through 32. The lapse from the previous prophecies, 14 days. A lamentation for the famous nations. Along with Egypt, another six named nations, at least, and two other princes of the north, at least, are mentioned in this passage. Again, for the sins of pride, rebellion, self-reliance. They are the uncircumcised, both in flesh and in heart. I wish I could spend time on that. I agonised over that for a long time. There are seven, eight references to the uncircumcised in there. There's a purpose for that. Um, and in particular, they will be charged with the sins of causing terror in the land of the living. So when these people could have done things for good, for themselves, for their people, for the good of mankind, the course of our world has taken the course of war after war after war. Short times of peace in between if there has been peace in the real sense of the word. They are all castigated for giving terror in the land of the living. These people will take peace from the earth for nations and for individuals. How will they be judged? Well, again, by the divine power. The Lord also caused, in verse 32, this is significant, where the Lord turns the phrase around and says, I will cause my terror in the land of the living for Pharaoh, for his multitudes, for his helpers, for the other nations, including world superpowers. Verse 32 says that the Lord did to them what they had done to what they had done to the world and to their people. They had not given peace, they had taken peace away, they had given the sword instead. The Lord judges them for this. And then they're brought down to the, ter the torments and pains of the netherworld. A living death. Uh, take time to look at that passage. It's a, it's a sad passage for those who will have an eternity without Christ. Who do not seek the glory of the Lord in the land of the living. When are they to be judged? Well, there have been many such scenes as these described in exceedingly graphic prophecies tonight. The legacy of human sin and evil have filled our world constantly with the sword. Individuals and nations have feared because of others. And I think tonight we would say that there's no peace in the world tonight. There is fear. However, in keeping the terror of the previous five prophecies and their clear future bearing, then what we have here is a more graphic and increased abundance of a scale of the great rebellion at the end of this age. The seventh and final prophecy. 
which I've entitled The End. First day, first month, 27th year. Going back to where we started. Chapter 29 of Ezekiel, verse 17 through 21. And this is now 14 years and 15 days after the last prophecy in chapter 32. So I've taken them in the chronological order here. Two things are mentioned here. The announcement of the invasion by the king of Babylon, verses 17 through 20. And the announcement of the budding of Israel in verse 21. I make a confession here. This was the most difficult of the seven prophecies that I had to study. Simply because in, um, um, in the verses that we have before us, it mentions the name Nebuchadnezzar in verse 18, his extraordinary long siege of Tyre in verse 18, and you can read that there. Now in history we know for a fact that that was a 13-year siege for one relatively tiny island, which it was at that time, it's now no longer, but it was at that time a tiny island, and they never got any treasure or booty from the island. The people were able to hold out for those 13 years. Ships came, uh, Phoenician ships, to supply them and to take away treasures to the other Phoenician colonies, and um, they, they never had um, um, the, the, the treasures that the king would have enjoyed or the army would have enjoyed. And, and then you see the hardships of which the army went through there. It speaks about the, the years of pain and, 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 and difficulty. And this has all been verified. Um, so I had that to think about. But then I also had to think that this was in relationship to a wonderful verse. And this is where we're going to finish with a wonderful verse tonight. I know it's all been judgment, doom and gloom. But I had to take it in relationship to verse 21, which is in the same seventh prophecy. In that day will I cause the horn of the house of Israel to bud forth. I can't see that being anything other than the restoration of Israel at the second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. When they shall look upon me, whom they have pierced, and they will see the weighted Messiah with the marks in his hands. They will know whom they have pierced. So, I had to look at verses 17 through 20 in the light of verse 21. And bear with me on this one. I think we have here what we call a foreshadowing of events to come. So that what Nebuchadnezzar did in his wicked evil during that time, I know that Mr. Newton has some views on this here and um, 
as I say, I'm still seeking wisdom, still looking for understanding, still seeking for guidance and leadership. Um, and I will, and I'll have the time to do this now. Um, but I think that the, the, these, at the moment, I'm looking upon as being foreshadowings. That because they did this, this will happen in the future, but in a far greater, far grander, far more uh, uh, terrible situation. Um, of course, we know that Antichrist will be um, a king of Babylon. He will be given the title of Asher. Uh, we find that out from uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 10. And it's just that I have a difficulty getting over the historical events of, of Tyre and, and, and then into Egypt. Because Egypt was then going to be the reward for Nebuchadnezzar. And no doubt he had the reward. He ransacked Egypt also, as well as inhabiting it and uh, as an occupying force. However, I said we'd finish on a nice note. In the final verse, verse 21, indeed we have a pleasant end to contemplate tonight. After the event of all of these prophecies, let's think of the whole seven prophecies. After the event of all these prophecies, a wonderful event in Israel, the restoration of Israel. And of course we know from the New Testament very clearly and also from the last three chapters of Zechariah that the restoration of Israel and the second advent of our Lord are simultaneous. And or in, in the day, in the day, an extended day of the Lord. In that day, Israel national will bud forth, not individually. But nationally, the restoration of Israel at the second advent of our Lord, the glorious manifested appearing of our Lord. In Zechariah, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. New Testament, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Amen. Let us pray. Amen.